The following presentation was recorded live by the Jewish Ethics Institute. It is my honor to introduce Rabbi Yossi Grossman, who is Dean of the Jewish Ethics Institute, a national organization that inspires physicians, attorneys, and business professionals to face contemporary dilemmas guided by the highest ethical standards, the Torah. Without further ado, Rabbi Grossman. Good afternoon, everyone. I hope you can all uh, eat and think at the same time. Um, so I know this is a very emotional issue. How many of us here have CHLs, just to, for me to gauge the crowd of what I can say and what I can't say? <laughs> CHLs, concealed hair. Only two, okay. I don't have it, but I'm very glad that our state allows us to have it. Okay. Uh, okay, so maybe by the end of the class, some of you will sign up, some of you might give up your guns, we'll see. We're going to have a gun amnesty after the class. People can drop off their guns um, if they like. So, um, I can try, but you might want to move closer because I'm a small guy and there's no mic. You might want to move up here. If you can't hear me, you might want to move closer. Okay, so um, some of you should have this. Unfortunately, we didn't print enough. Um, if you don't have, find someone you like, sit next to them and share. Um, so the first thing to begin with is I want to state that, um, as we know, Judaism is not a pacifist religion. Um, that's something we, um, that's very clear throughout the Torah. We found, find many references to war and to, uh, and to weapons as we're going to see. We're not just, as a disclaimer here, we're not talking politics this morning. We're not taking sides in the debate. We are just presenting um, uh, Jewish texts that discuss the issue, and from those texts you can maybe ascertain um, different sides of the debate. So that's the, that's the goal here today, is what is the Torah's view on the current gun debate um, within the United States? So we're just going to use Jewish texts, except for the first one here, which is from Matthew. That's not a Jewish text. That's actually a Christian text from the New Testament. And clearly, the Christian view says, as we know very clearly, resist not evil, but whoever shall smite thee on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. So clearly, um, Judaism does not agree with that view. We don't believe in turning the cheek. Um, as a matter of fact, as we'll see, when someone, um, the Torah says very clearly, in Hebrew, the words are, Hashkem if someone comes to kill you, you're obligated, not only are you allowed to, you're obligated to kill them first. Okay, so we don't uh, say, we're not pacifists, and, uh, and we clearly do um, need to save our lives in, in questions of self-defense. There's not even a question, you're allowed to kill someone in self-defense. So I'm going to begin here with the recording, and I hope you can hear it. This is, um, everyone familiar with the Joe Horn case that took place in Pasadena? Um, Pearland, I forgot where it was, a few years back, um, who, this was a guy, native Texan, who uh, one morning wakes up and sees two very tall people breaking into his, uh, his neighbor's house, not on his property, and to his neighbor's home. And he goes and calls 911, calls the police, um, and he tells them, I have a shotgun, I'm going to go get them and the, the, the uh, dispatcher is trying to tell him not to get them, trying to calm him down. To make a long story short, he comes out and shoots them both as they're leaving the home, shoots them in the back. So this is a recording of the 9-11 call. I don't know if 
We'll see if we can hear it. It's a nine minute call, I'm not gonna play the whole thing. Just for you to get an idea. Uh, no, you can't. Okay. So forget it. So then we're not going to play. 7-4-8-2-9-9-9-9-9-9-9-9-9-9-9-9-9-9-9-9-9-9-9-9-9-9-9-9-9-9-9-9-9-9-9-9-9-9-9-9-9-9-9-9-9-9-9-9-9-9-
myself, five foot five, unarmed, and uh, they asked me for my wallet and keys, um, keys to the car, and I, not thinking, automatically, human instinct is I just ran. Three guys against me, they had a shiny object in their hand, didn't realize it was a gun at the time, and I started running, which I should have just given them the keys, right? Small guy against three people, I started running. To my luck, um, I ran into, it was a dead end street, so I didn't make it very far. It was a cul-de-sac, it was a dead end uh, street, so I didn't really didn't make it too far. And uh, then they caught up to me, and uh, they sh I saw the gun, so then at that point I gave them the keys, and my wallet, it was a matter of fact, it was a rental. It, was, it wasn't even my car, so I should have easily given it up. But human nature is to protect your money with your life, which doesn't make any sense. It's not, it's not logical, it's not rational, um, but that's what I did. Is this on? Yes. Is that better? Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Should we start over? Are you going to play the recordings? Okay, so the, the point is, I guess, the Talmud explains, since it's understood human nature and human psychology is that people will do unrational things to protect their property, therefore the assumption is when you're, when it, for a thief, when he's breaking into a home, the assumption is he knows that. He knows that you're going to protect your property with your life if you have to. And therefore, he is assuming that he might have to kill you. And therefore, says the Talmud, you could assume that he's assuming that he might have to kill you, and therefore you can protect yourself. Assume, assume that, and therefore you're allowed to kill him just for breaking into your home. So the important point here is, and as we'll hear on the Joe Horn recording, the Torah is not allowing you to take a life to protect your property. God forbid, you can never um, shoot someone just because they're on your property, which is, by the way, the state of Texas does say that. The state of Texas has the castle doctrine. Um, state law says that if someone steps foot on your property, um, if someone steps foot on your property, you're allowed to shoot them down. Okay, second they put a foot on your property. That's why, as we'll see, Joe Horn was acquitted because he claims they put, they actually put a toe on, the, on his property as they were walking off his neighbor's property. Um, so that's exactly why he was acquitted. But the point is, um, the Torah is not saying that. The Torah doesn't allow you to protect your property with someone else's life. You can't take a life for someone's property. Um, all it's saying is the assumption is because your life might be taken, there's an assumption that he might kill you, therefore you're allowed to protect yourself in self-defense. So that's um, step number one here. And now we're going to play um, the recording. I can get it back up. So now an important concept of this is, so that's what it says here in quote number two. It says, what is the reason for the law of breaking in? Because it is certain that no man is inactive where his property is concerned. Therefore, this, this one, the thief, must have reasoned, if I go there, the owner will oppose me and prevent me. But if he does, I will kill him. Hence the Torah decreed, if he come to slay thee, forestall him by slaying him first. So that's really, again, that's the concept here, where you can kill him first because the assumption is he might be here to kill you even though he's only coming for property. Um, so, now one of the fascinating things, as we'll see, is that means in a case where you know for sure the person will not kill you, for example, the Maimonides quotes and the Talmud quotes, let's say it's your father breaking into your home, okay? Let's say your father has a drug habit, you know, something, he, he's looking for something, you know he's looking for something in your house, you don't want to give it to him, he's an alcoholic, whatever the case is, he's breaking into your home. Human psych the same human psychology that tells us you could, that someone will protect 
their property with their life tells you a father, at least in normal society, father will never kill his son. Okay, therefore in a case, that's one extreme example, where a father is breaking into your home, then you cannot shoot him. I don't believe that's the law in Texas. The Castle Doctrine doesn't exclude fathers. But, but the Torah, according to the Talmud, if a father is breaking in, you have no right to shoot him. Again, because the only reason you're allowed to shoot someone is because the assumption is he might kill you. But since normal um, human beings don't kill their sons, therefore you can't assume that your father will kill you, and therefore you can't shoot him if he's breaking in. As opposed to the other way around. If it's a son breaking into the father's property, so a son might kill their father. That's happened. That, that can, it's not maybe normal, but that um, you cannot assume a son will not kill his father. And therefore, um, in that case, you would be allowed to, the, the father could shoot the son technically in self-defense. Okay? So that's, so that's one extreme example. Or, for example, just trying to think of other examples where you know the person cannot kill you. For example, it's an 85-year-old man. He's unarmed. He's, he's breaking in. He's buck naked. So you know he's no weapons. Okay? So there's nothing to be concerned about. So in a case like that, similar concept would apply. The halacha would be, Jewish law would tell you, you cannot shoot him. Because, again, the only reason you're allowed to shoot the intruder is to protect your life, not to protect your property. Okay? On that note, I try to play the Joe Horn um, recording again. And I'm going to fast forward it at certain places because, like I said, it's a nine minute call. We don't need to hear, uh, and I apologize if there's any four letter words here. Um, and if you're eating, you might lose your appetite at the end of the call. So.
Okay. So this, this man, Joe Horn, was acquitted in our great state of Texas. Um, <laughs> so yeah. Yeah, it wasn't. It wasn't even. Didn't even make it to trial. Grand jury acquitted. Um, so the. So according to Jewish law, based on what we just said, that would be a problem there. Um, the point is, again, the the objective is not to save the property. It's only if there's a threat to your life. So number one is if they're breaking into your neighbor's property, then there's no threat to your life. Assuming the neighbor wasn't home, he said he didn't even know the neighbors. The neighbors weren't there. So number one is that then you couldn't apply this law to this case because it was the neighbor's house. So there was no threat to his life. Secondly, um, he shot them in the back, both of them um, were shot in the back, um, on their way out. So the only permission, the only allowance that Torah says is to get in self-defense. That means if they're coming, tunneling in, as the verse says in Exodus, if they're tunneling in, that's when you have a right to shoot them because of self-defense of your life, not your property. Once they're on the way out, as in this case, there's no question it would be prohibited to shoot him. Even though, again, his, the reason why, according to Texas state law, he got off, he was acquitted, was because he claimed they stepped foot on his property on the way out. Okay, but he did shoot him in the back. No one denies that. So in, according to the Torah, this would be, he would be tried for capital murder. There wouldn't be a question in this case. It's a case of capital murder, and it prohibited for, to what he did. Yes? Question. Um, since we're talking about Jewish law versus Texas law, I guess, um, isn't there something in the Torah where it says, and I'm going to need to follow up on this, isn't there something in the Torah where it says, do not stand idly by while your neighbor's blood is shed? Yes, so that's that's a very good point. You mentioned it. Remember that from last year's class? I'm impressed. We, we, um, there is a verse in Leviticus, he's saying that that states very clearly that we have an obligation to rescue. That means even when your brother's blood is being shed, you can't stand idly by. The Torah says that very clearly. You shall not stand idly by while your brother's blood is being shed. Um, which is actually stricter than most uh, most states don't do not have such a law. You're not required to save someone else. Okay, so that's a good question. But here again, as I mentioned, his neighbor wasn't home. Um, maybe he can claim he didn't know that. But well, also they were on the way out. That's so, why I so in either case, even if his neighbor was home, but once they're on the way out, what we're saying is there's no permission to to wouldn't be permission to shoot them any, in any case. Because he's not saving, he's not rescuing his neighbor at that point. My only follow-up, and I don't know if this came out with the grand jury or what the facts are, but did we? What we don't know is did he ask them to halt before he shot them? And did they? Their, didn't did sound they like disregard, it on the tape. Did they disregard? And, and that that would be irrelevant. First of all, we didn't hear. I, don't, I didn't hear that on the tape. But either way, it was irrelevant because even if he asked them to halt, once they're on their way out, there's no longer a threat to human life, and therefore he wouldn't have a right to shoot them. This shooting was witnessed by, when you heard on the thing, the, the police officer was saying, I have a warrant officer out there now. There was a police officer across the street watching the whole thing as it was, as it was going on. Well, at what point the police they were, were, they were got out there? But it's irrelevant. That we don't, were, we don't even know those details of the case because, like I said, in either case, once they're on their way out, it'll be, according to the Torah, it'll be prohibited to shoot them. So, so that's really all, all those facts that are irrelevant to, to the Torah law. It might be relevant to Texas state law. Okay, so, so uh, that's issue number one here, which is, uh, so, which is important. Again, so we're saying self-defense is permitted, um, but only if there's a threat, there's a true threat to your life. Once they're on the way out, or it's a case where there's no threat to your life, um, then you wouldn't be allowed to do that. As Maimonides says, if you look on page number three here, number um, 11, number 10, it says, 
if it is clear, this is quoted, a quote from Maimonides, when he codifies this law, he says it is clear, if it is clear to the house owner that the thief who breaks in will not kill him, and instead is only seeking financial gain, is forbidden to kill the thief. Therefore, a father who breaks into his son's home should not be killed, but a son who breaks into his father's home may be killed, as we mentioned. Because again, the assumption is a father will never kill a son, and therefore it's not self-defense at that point. Um, Another example that Maimonides gives in number 12 would be, let's say someone's breaking into your garage. Okay, let's say you have, or you have a field, you have a shed out in a field somewhere, and, um, or you're in your garage, you happen to be in your garage, and all of a sudden you hear someone <coughs> trying to break into the garage. So according to what we're saying is that there would be a problem there of shooting the intruder in that case too, because again, the whole concept is based on human psychology, is that he thinks someone's home, he thinks he knows people are there and might protect their property with their life, and therefore he's ready to kill you. But for example, a place where the assumption is he doesn't assume that there's someone there. So for example, your garage, normally when people are not in their garages, someone's trying to break into a garage or a shed, the assumption is there's no one there. The owner is not there, therefore you can't assume he's going to kill you. Or that he's on for that matter. And therefore in that case also, says Maimonides in number 12, let me just finish num quote number 12. He says, similarly, a person who breaks into a garden, a field, a pen, or a corral may not be killed, for the prevailing assumption is that he came merely to steal money. For generally, the owners are not found in such places. So again, any time you cannot make the assumption that he's coming to kill you, then you have no right to kill him. Yes? Number seven. When a person breaks into a home, whether at night or during the day, license grant to kill him. Yes. So what, what's your question? Yeah, so the assumption that's what I said before. The assumption is when someone breaks into a home, the owner might be there, and therefore he's ready to kill you. That's the assumption. That's that's the point. And the home is different than Another place, let's say, or a place of business would be the same, but let's say what we're saying is a garage where you have a shed somewhere in a field, over there there's no such assumption. No, but, uh, I just thought it contradicted. It says yeah. if either the homeowner or another person kills him, they're not liable, i.e. Joe Horn was not liable. Yeah, no, no, again, if, if it was a threat to someone's life. Right, there's two aspects of Joe Horn, let me make it clear again. One is, there was no one home next door. Secondly, secondly, he shot them when they were leaving. It's only, you're only able to kill them when they're coming in. Okay. So therefore, okay. Joe Horn is capital murder. If, if, if there would have been somebody home, home it and been okay. not if he would have shot them coming in, not on the way out. Once they're on the way out, it's not self-defense anymore. It's very simple. The logic is it has well, to be self-defense. Once they're on the way out. Okay, I, I'll buy that, but how did he know whether the owner was home or not, his neighbor was home or not? He was, he was, he was, he was, yeah, they were on vacation, he told, no, he, he told that to the dispatcher, it was actually in the beginning of the call, he told the dispatchers they were away, so he knew they were away, yeah. Um, we are sitting here saying Texas law and Jewish law, and since realistically we're not in our own country as a Jewish people, so we're not governed by a Jew, by Jewish halakhic law. Uh, okay. So most of this is morally bound by, you know, Jewish law, we're morally bound to it rather than somebody policing us and doing it. How do we, there is another halakhic law that you have to follow the rules of the country in which you live. Yes, that's a great so question. How, how do you, 
Okay, so it's a great question. He's saying, what, what do you have when you have a contradiction between Texas state law, which in this case acquitted Joe Horn, says, so technically says he, would, he was allowed to do what he did, and where the Torah were saying in the, the Torah's eyes is clearly capital murder. Okay, so it's a great question. So in most cases, and, and what he's mentioning is there's a concept, a Jewish principle, known as dina de malchuta dina. That means the law of the malchut, of the kingdom, of the land you live in, is the law that as Jews we have to uphold. But that's only, first of all, most, most opinions say that's when it comes to monetary law. Um, when you're dealing with taking a life, okay, there's, there's no obligation, not only obligation, I mean, you can't say, well, the, the state says you're allowed to kill these people, and Judaism says the Torah says you're not. So of course that's still murder in the Torah's eyes. You don't, in those cases, you don't say you keep the law of the land. You don't have to kill them. Again, if it's a, not a case of self-defense, you don't have to kill them. Therefore, according to the Torah, it's murder. Obviously, you're not going to be tried by the law of the land, but there's no question you'd have to uphold. In this case, you uphold the Torah's law. When it comes to uh, paying your taxes or tort law, okay, where the Texas says this contractual law, whatever other case of someone suing someone, in those cases is where you, you go with the law of the land. But is there an idea of extenuating circumstances, which is very heavily in murder cases, well, not murder, but you know, self-defense, there's a lot of extenuating circumstances in court trials. Listen, of course, you, in, in order to be tried for capital murder, when that's a whole different topic, in Jewish law you need witnesses, you have to be forewarned, and there's a lot of criteria, so it's almost impossible to actually prosecute someone in capital, in capital murder case. So, but that's a whole different topic. But in general, the answer to your question is usually we uphold the law of the land. Here, in, in case when it's murder, there's no question you, it's considered murder by the Torah, you wouldn't be allowed to do it as a Jew. Isn't the Torah law that you have, uh, <coughs> Depending what, in certain Torah law, even if it contradicts, the, yeah. the law of the land might override Torah law, meaning in Torah law. But if it contradicts the Torah law, you can't. Yes, yes, generally that's generally true. Yes. Okay, so we're going to move on here. Um, Can we, can we save the questions to the end? Because I want to get through the material, make sure I have enough time. Um, okay, so the next question is, some, some make the argument, I've heard some uh, quote-unquote rabbis making the argument that owning a gun in general, and we're turning to the next page, is a problem according to Jewish law, because Judaism says um, we need to be safe. There has to be, um, you're, not, you're not supposed to have dangerous things around your house. There are many laws in the Torah which do speak to that. But I want to show how that's, that's a very simplistic argument, as we'll see soon. So the Torah does say very clearly, um, it says uh, in Deuteronomy, there's a verse in Deuteronomy which states, you shall make a fence for your roof so that you will not place blood in your house if one falls from it. This is a famous law, it's known as the law of the parapet, where you're obligated if one has a landing, any type of uh, balcony or porch, which is over a certain, I think it's above... Ten, uh, eight feet or something like that, you're obligated, the Torah says it's a mitzvah, one of the 613 commandments, to place a fence around around the landing or the roof, if it's a flat roof where people have access to it. And the reason is obviously for safety reasons. We don't want people falling off roofs. And, and Maimonides broadens this law to say that it's not just limited to a case of a roof, um, we're obligated for safety reasons to build a fence. Any dangerous situation, it's prohibited for a Jew to have any dangerous situation in their house. So when you have a pool in your back yard and you have grandkids or children, you're obligated to build a fence around the pool. Um, anything that could be dangerous, potentially dangerous, so much so, the Maimonides says, 
that it's prohibited to own a vicious dog, a pit bull. If someone has a pit bull, um, that might be a problem. Of course, you have to speak to your local rabbi about that. Um, what? Steak knife? That's a good question. Well, good. You eat steak? <laughs> I thought it's all vegans here. Yeah, so, so we'll, we'll talk about that. So, so the point is, there's a valid question. Every, you know, anything potentially could be dangerous. We're going to talk about that. So, but the first thing is to understand Maimonides does draw this rule, as I put here in quote number two. He says, this commandment applies to any dangerous situation. So anything that's a danger to a life, is maybe prohibited. And by the way, even this is one of the sources, even to take care of one's health. People need to uh, make sure they're not eating things that are dangerous to their health. Um, maybe bungee jumping, I don't know the numbers. Driving on 610 might be prohibited. Um, is this uh, dangerous? So, so there are many dangerous situations, and how do we define danger? That's a good question. But Maimonides says very clearly, for example, any safety hazard, occupational hazard, owning a pit bull um, is considered in certain cases dangerous, and it's prohibited to own that, to own things that are potential danger. Um, as a matter of fact, the, the code of Jewish law says that danger, we treat things that are dangerous even stricter than ritual prohibitions. So for example, as we know, the famous thing with your little milk falls into your pot of chicken soup. If it's less than a 60th, it's called batel. It, it becomes nullified. You're allowed to have the chicken soup even though your milk fell in there. Okay? But it says if a little poison falls in, even if it's less than a 60th, it's prohibited, according to Jewish law, to have the chicken soup because sakanta chamira meisura. That means danger to life we treat stricter than, than moral prohibitions. So we're very concerned about danger. Um, but, and this we're getting to your steak knife question, um, in some cases, obviously even let's say, depending on why you own the pit bull, someone has a pit bull just for fun and they have little children coming around, that potentially can be a problem. Okay, and you have to take the necessary precautions to make sure that it's not a danger. But let's say you live in a bad neighborhood. We're not going to choose any neighborhoods. I don't know where you guys live. Um, if you live in a neighborhood where you need a pit bull to protect your family, okay, so then many, many commentaries explain in that case, not only is it not prohibited, it might even be obligatory to have a pit bull in that case. It now becomes a mitzvah because you need to protect yourself, as we said, right? Um, it says, as we mentioned before, it means before someone comes and kills you, you have to make sure to kill them. Okay, so not only it would then be permitted to own the pit bull, it might even be um, obligatory, a mitzvah, to have that pit bull on your property to make sure that you're protected. Okay, so the same would apply. Um, now applying, taking that same concept and applying it to guns, like I said, some want to make the argument that guns are a danger and therefore just the fact that they're a danger, it's prohibited to have them around the house. Okay, um, so this, again, this argument is rather simplistic in the sense of depending on why you have the gun and depending on who's in the house, if, if, if you're right. There's no question, according to the Torah, if you do own a gun and you have it around the house, you need to take the proper safety precautions. And it's obligatory to take those safety precautions. If you have kids, you have to keep it in a safe, whatever the case is, not keep the bullets, keep the bullets locked up. Whatever safety precautions um, that you learned when you got your concealed carry, concealed, um, carry license, um, you want to do, and make sure, and that might be, according to the Torah, that might be obligatory. It's halacha. You need to take the proper safety precautions. But that doesn't negate the fact that if you need that gun, again, for um, protection purposes, to say, to defend your life, then of course you're allowed to have the gun around. If you're having it just for fun or just for hunting purposes, that might be different. Because again, that's like having the pit bull just for fun, which um, might be dangerous. Now again, if one takes the proper safety precautions, 
and the, the, with the gun or with the pit bull, maybe then it's okay in those cases. But in any case, it's true, um, the Torah is very concerned about safety, and it is a commandment to make sure you don't have anything dangerous in your house, but like, like as, uh, I don't know your name, what's your name? Peter mentioned, Stephen mentioned that uh, steak knives are also dangerous. So clearly, you're, if you have children around the house, you have to take the proper precautions with steak knives, just as you have to take the proper precautions with guns. Um, so all those are, are important. Um, so clearly, you'd be allowed to own a gun if it's necessary for, for, um, for protection. Now, what's fascinating is this is a, a as we know, the Talmud, Jewish law discusses everything um, amongst them even discusses the question, one of the big debates going on today in the United States is the question of background checks and are, who's liable for, for the dangers or the atrocities that are being committed with the guns. Is it the manufacturers? Is it the, the retailers? Who, who's, who do we, can they be held liable for what people do with guns? Okay, so this is something that actually Talmud, believe it or not, discusses at great length. And this is Maimonides when he codifies these laws from the Talmud. The Talmud is in Tractate Avodazara, and um, it might, um, risk of sounding a little racist here, it's not me, it's Maimonides. Maimonides sounding a little racist. He discusses in those, and you have to put in the proper historical context, in those days there was a concern, um, as we know historically, Jews living in various societies, that the, the the Gentiles weren't so fond of them, and their lives were many times at danger throughout our history. Therefore, Maimonides rules, and we're at the bottom of this page here, with the chart on top. So Maimonides says very clearly, it is forbidden to sell Gentiles any weaponry. Okay, as a Jew, and again, the assumption it's putting in the, in the historical context, as we'll see, it's not racist, it's prohibited to sell, sell um, guns to Jews who are gonna kill um, fellow Jews too. So it's not limited to Gentiles. This, I would say it's somewhat equivalent today in Israel if you would sell a gun in, on the West Bank to a Palestinian. It's probably not a smart idea because the, um, you can assume that that gun is going to end up being used against a, an Israeli citizen. Um, usually that's, that's why they're buying. They're not buying the guns to go hunting their donkeys. Okay? Well, what, what, but wouldn't it be true that this, is this law, Jewish law, still in effect? Technically, yes, 100%. Okay, so is Israel violating Jewish law by selling Uzis to the rest of the world? Um, maybe. We'll, we'll get to that in a second. It's a good question. It's a good question. Okay, let, me, let me first define the law, and then we'll get to the question. Let me just explain a little better. So Maimonides says here, we're in law 12, halacha number 12 of Maimonides. It says, forbidden to sell Gentiles any weaponry. We may not sharpen weapons, not only selling actual weapons, but we can't sharpen weapons for them, sell them a knife, chains, put on the necks of prisoners, fetters, which I believe are sometimes of handcuffs, um, iron chains, raw Indian iron, bears, lions, or raw Indian iron. Some type of iron that was used in the making of weapons in those days. I'm not familiar with it. Speak to your local metallurgist. One, one may, however, sell them shields, for these serve only for the purpose of defense. So, you know, if you're selling defensive, purely defensive weapons, that's permitted. Okay, something that's used, so let's say, I'm, try, I'm trying to think what's a purely defensive, let's say a can of, of mace, or what are they called? Pepper spray. Pepper spray, something like that, which is, I'm assuming, only used for defensive purposes. Something like that is fine, because again, that's for defensive purposes. But anything that can be used um, for offense, I'm only saying you cannot sell it to someone who you know there's a good chance they're going to use it for criminal activity. Okay? So well, you had a question. Yeah. So, yeah, so on a personal level, 
If I wanted to go get an FFL and I wanted to sit there and assemble ARs, you know, I wanted to sell them. You got to translate for the yeah, yeah, FFL. Assault rifles. Assault okay. rifles. Okay. If I wanted to sit here and get a federal firearm license, which is a bit hard, but perfectly capable for almost anybody in this room, and I wanted to assemble Half along, then. Half along. You can do from over you know, right now it's a little harder, but if I want to assemble it, I get all the pieces, I put it together, and you can tell there are people who do it. Several friends of mine do it, and you can make good money. I cannot sell to a Gentile. Uh, so we'll get there. So we'll get, we'll, we didn't say that yet. Well, I'll apply. That's a good question. Like, it's a good question. We'll get there in a second. So, so that's halacha number 12. We move on. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Please go ahead. Right That's a good question. So if he had, can I hear the question? So if he still has his weapons on him in a situation like that, where there is a danger that he can go and still shoot other people, there's no question. That would be self-defense. In a case like that, where it's clear he's not coming to steal anything, he just wants to kill people, and he's walking out with his weapons. If he was unarmed at that point, you still wouldn't be able to shoot him. Okay, if he was armed, then there's still a potential danger for him to shoot other children or other adults, then no question you'd be allowed to shoot him in the head. Okay, and then one thing actually we didn't mention just before this, so I want to go back, is in, in the case when someone's tunneling in, um, it's clear that my mind is also said, I didn't put it here on the sheet, that if you can prevent the person from coming in or stop them in his tracks prior without killing him, then you're obligated to do that also. Jewish law says you're only allowed to kill the person if that's the only way to stop him. If you can shoot him in the legs or uh, throw down a banana peel and whatever the case is and stop him, okay, without killing him, you're obligated to do that, to try that first. Again, if you, if you knew you can stop in another fashion without killing him and you shot him in the head, then that, again, that, that would be capital murder. That person would be tried for capital murder for killing that person. Obviously, in the heat of a situation, we don't expect someone to make a split-second decision, so you'd be judged on the situation. So, but, again, if it was a calm situation where the person knows they can stop him in another way without killing, killing the person, you'd be obligated to do that. Yeah. I just want to say, if you think of the Israeli army, it's called Israel Defense Forces. And we are there for the defense, not for attack. Okay. Uh, and then, Could come. And then the other point is, just like you said, the Israeli, um, when you have to stop a Palestinian somewhere that you think that is, you know, coming at you, you have to, but you don't shoot first and then ask questions. You have to tell them to stop. Right. There's a protocol. Which, by the way, I'm not so sure that's right because in many cases, soldiers are injured or other people are injured because they don't. They have this protocol. You might, according to Allah, according to Jewish law, you might have to shoot in certain cases. But there's a presumption that there's going to be there's a danger to life. You don't. There's no protocol. You just shoot. Ask questions later, as as the front, as the picture on the front. Here. Okay, so, so I'm not sure that protocol is, is a good thing in the state of Israel. Yes. Up until about the 1940s, we used to have a Department of War, now called the Department of Defense, 
hasn't changed much in his duties either. So calling it some one thing and having to do something else. Yes, the name doesn't mean much, but it is. It happens to be. It's nice that probably one of the only armies in the world. And I call that. We only have five minutes left, so I want to get to some of the material, and we'll get to the rest of the questions. So, so um, just uh, as we mentioned. I just I don't want to leave my manatee sounding racist. If you look at halacha number 14, okay, on the next sheet, it says every article that is forbidden um, to be sold to a Gentile is also forbidden to be sold to a Jewish robber. So it's not an issue. We have nothing personally against Gentiles. Um, it's it's again the, assu the assumption is in those days if you sold to a fellow Jew, it wouldn't be used for criminal activity. It wouldn't be used um, for murder. So, but if you know for sure this person, whether he's Jewish or not, is going to commit a, a, some criminal activity with this weapon, Imanides is saying it's prohibited to sell it to him. But by doing so, one reinforces the transgressor and causes him to sin. Okay? Um, now, before that, it's a little cut off there on the top of the page. It says, um, it also is forbidden to sell it to a Jew who will then sell it to a Gentile. Some people want to make the argument, you know, if it's two steps removed, you know, that's fine. Because I'm, I'm just a manufacturer, and I'm selling it to, uh, you know, to someone else, to a wholesaler who's going to sell it at the gun show. Okay, so it's not my liability. And Manly says, no matter how many steps away you are from the end, from the end result, if the end result is this gun, you know it's going to end up in a criminal's hands, such as, let's say, the case of Fast and Furious, or, or any cases where you, there's a good chance you know you're selling this gun, whoever you're selling it to. You know the person you're selling it to might be an upstanding citizen, but it will end up in someone else's hands. In those cases, Maimonides says it's prohibited to sell it. And he says also it's permitted to sell weapons to the soldiers of the country in which one lives because they defend the Jewish inhabitants of the land. So that would be, uh, someone asked about is the is Israeli government selling weapons to many other countries. Again, since it's um, the assumption is most countries use it for defensive purposes, um, especially small arms. And therefore, the assumption is you're allowed to sell it. Okay, but my point from all this, from this Maimonides is, before we get to the next part, um, is that clearly Maimonides is saying, according to Jewish law, based on the Talmud, that manufacturers and sellers of guns do have a responsibility to make sure that their guns won't end up in the wrong hands. Okay, that's clear. Again, you're allowed to have guns. You're allowed to use them for defensive purposes, but if there's a chance, or you, or not a, a chance, but if you know there's a good chance, this, these weapons will end up in someone else's hands that shouldn't, they shouldn't have them, then it's prohibited to sell it to them. Um, so this would be a, an argument for background checks, where we know um, that by checking people out, maybe, at least in some sense, we, we're avoiding some criminals, people who have criminal background or mental health, uh, problems where there's a good chance they're going to use these guns in criminal for criminal activity would be prohibited. I want to end off here before we get to questions. The last statement here is the most fascinating statement I found this two weeks ago um, um, as I was looking for material in the class. And uh, this is just to prove that there's nothing new in the world. This is a quote from Nachmanides who lived in the 1200s, early 1200s. Um, and he's this is a commentary on the Torah where he's discussing the beginning of civilization. This is Genesis. Um, there was a fellow, I don't have the verses, um, I don't have the verses here on the page, but in the end of the first portion of the Torah is Genesis. This was a great, there was a great grandson of Cain. Cain, as we know, was the first murderer in the world. Okay, and his great grandson, he had a great grandson, the Torah says, named Lamech. Okay, poor choice of names, that was his name, Lamech. And he had three sons, two wives, three sons, the Torah tells us. And, um, he was actually still alive at the time of Adam. Adam, they, they overlapped 50 years. He was a great, great, great grandson. So the first 
human being in the world, the first human, was Adam, as we know, and Lamech, his great-great-grandson, was still alive. They overlapped for 50 years. Um, it says Adam lived something like 970 years. Okay? So uh, he didn't smoke. Um, so, so the point is that, that uh, my man is, uh, Nachmanis here is describing the, the verses in the Torah. It says that this guy Lamech taught, it was the beginning of civilization, he taught his three sons, each one a different career. The first one, it says he taught... Um, um, I believe they calls it cattle, cattlery, how to deal with, um, how to mate and breed different f forms of cattle. Okay, they, this is before Texas, but they actually taught that. And this was the first person in the world, that's what he taught him, how to be a cattleman, and how to breed cattle. The second son, it says he taught music. He taught him how to make a harp and various forms of music. Again, first person in the world, this was the first unemployed musician in the world, right? And then the third son, um, the third son was, was I forgot his name, he said, we'll read here in a second, he taught him how to make weapons. He taught him how to use um, um, different metals and to form weapons. So I'm going to read this paragraph here. Um, this is from Nachmanides, amazing stuff. Again, we're talking about this argument was taking place 5,000 years ago. Am I out of time? Two minutes, okay. It says like this, says Nachmanides, however, it appears to me that Lebach was a very wise man in every craft. We're in the last paragraph here, on the last page. And he taught his eldest son, Jabal, the business of pasturing according to the nature of the cattle. To the second son, Jubal, he taught the art of music. And he taught the third one, Tubal Cain, to forge metals and to make swords, spears, javelins, and all instruments of war. So it says, and this, is, this might have been the first argument between man and wife, actually it was the second one, as we know Adam and, and Eve argued, but it says his wives were then afraid that he might be punished because he brought the, word, the sword and murder into the world. He was teaching his kids how to create weapons. He thus retained in his hands the evil deed of his ancestor Cain, since he was the descendant of the first murderer, and he created the waster to destroy. So the wives were complaining to him, why are you teaching our children how to make weapons? Um, but he Lamech told them, so he argued back. He says, I did not slay a man by wounds, nor a child by bruises, as did Cain. And God will not punish me. Instead, he will guard me from being killed, more so than Cain. He Lamech mentioned this in order to say that man cannot kill only with the sword and javelin. Death caused by wounds and bruises is a worse death than by sword. As a matter of fact, Cain's murder, when he killed his brother, um, uh, Abel, he actually killed him with his hands. He strangled him. Therefore, listen to these words. Unbelievable words. It's like straight out of an NRA commercial. Uh, the last words. He says, therefore, the sword is not the cause of murder, and there is no sin upon him who made it. So Lamech, 5,000 years ago, was making this NRA argument to his wives and saying, listen, it's people that kill, right? It's guns don't kill people. It's people that, that, that make the decision to kill. So again, obviously his wives disagreed. There was an argument here, and we don't know who's right. Usually the wife is right, but we're not taking sides, right? But, but in this case, what's beautiful about this is 5,000 years ago, the beginning of civilization, while Adam was still alive, you had the same exact argument we have today in our current society. Thank you.